Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Jade Tyra. I am from Oklahoma. I'm the state lead of Oklahoma's Youth Climate Strike. I'm really into civic engagement as well. I'm Juliana. Uh, I'm the lead fellow for Next Gen Politics here in Manhattan. And I got the pleasure of hearing Will speak to us yesterday. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Maggie Yu. Uh, I live on Long Island, and I'm currently a sophomore in high school. Um, hi, everyone, again, for the one millionth time. <laughs> um, I'm Olivia Becker. I am a junior at the Ethical Culture Fields in School in New York, as well as NGP's Director of Outreach and Engagement and a lead civic fellow in New York. I fell in love with NGP because of, I think, for this very reason of its emphasis on freedom of expression and cross-partisanship and empowering the youth voice of today and tomorrow. Hi, everybody. I'm Ryan. I was one of the uh, founders of Next Generation Politics um, almost four years ago uh, at Northport Public Library in Long Island. Uh, I'm currently a sophomore at Vanderbilt University. I was the uh, first director of outreach and expansion for Next Generation Politics. It's an honor to be with such distinguished company this evening. Thank you so much. And uh, my name is Will Creeley. I'm the senior vice president for legal and public advocacy for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. We are a nonpartisan uh, nonprofit dedicated to defending student and faculty rights, uh, particularly free expression rights. Just jumping right into it. We were wondering, free speech is so important. It is one of the fundamental values of our nation. But um, in this complicated time we live in, I think there's been a confusing and very gray line between free speech and hate speech. Sure. So, yeah, would you mind going into a little bit about when does free speech become hate speech and what are some examples of this? Yeah, that's a great question. It's probably the question I get most. Uh, I've been doing this work for 13 years now, and I, I travel around the country and speak to students um, at both the high school and college level, particularly college students. And the question of hate speech is foremost on everybody's minds. Uh, the problem that I have is that I don't have a satisfying answer. Uh, hate speech is squirrely. It is elastic. It is really frustrating to nail down. If you ask somebody uh, wearing a, a Trump hat on the street what hate speech is, they'd probably give you an answer that's different from somebody uh, who's got different partisan leanings and vice versa. Uh, everybody has a pretty good idea of what hate speech is uh, when they think about themselves. The problem is that their answer doesn't necessarily line up with somebody else's answer. It's inherently subjective. Uh, there's the old uh, line from the Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart uh, when he's talking about obscenity. And he said, uh, I, basically paraphrasing, I, I, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And hate speech can be a little bit like that. So there's no hate speech exception to the First Amendment. Uh, a lot of speech that we would consider hateful, or most people would consider hateful, is in fact protected by the First Amendment. Yesterday at the NGP session, uh, I, I told uh, all the very terrific and bright attendees there uh, that uh, you have a First Amendment right to be a racist bigot. Uh, what you don't have a First Amendment right to do is engage in some narrow categories of speech that aren't protected by the First Amendment. The First Amendment does not mean anything goes. Uh, it just means that there are carefully crafted exceptions to its protection. And a couple of them are relevant when we're thinking about hate speech. Number one, discriminatory harassment. Uh, if you are at Vanderbilt, for example, like you are, Ryan, uh, and you say to your roommate uh, something horrible uh, day in and day out, not that, of course, you would ever Now, this happens on a daily basis. Right? <laughs> so if you, if you subjected 
your roommate or somebody subjected you to uh, speech that was uh, objectively offensive, severe and pervasive uh, on the basis of a protected class status like gender identity, national origin, race, etc., cetera, uh, you would be able to say, hey, this person is creating a hostile environment for me. This is harassing. And that speech is not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, likewise, uh, true threats and intimidation, sometimes they're often, not, not sometimes, I think quite often they're motivated by hatred on the basis of protected class status. Uh, those are not protected. You cannot say something to somebody else uh, that leaves them in reasonable fear of bodily harm or death and intend to do so. Uh, so if somebody says something horrible uh, to you on the basis of a protected class status and, and implies that they're going to hurt you, uh, that's not protected. And that is hate speech. Uh, but a lot of the kind of just uh, free-floating political speech that is uh, hateful, a lot of it is protected. And the reason why is because the court uh, and the legislators have never been able to find a good way uh, to uh, define hate speech in a way that doesn't uh, inadvertently reach speech that's actually really important. What's the most constructive way to react to it? How do we communicate that message to people like my age, for instance, because a college campus, there's there's a protest every other day for something. Sure. And yeah. a glaring example last year was um, Jeff Flake came to speak and he was um, being like accosted outside the venue for because he was promoting hate speech. And granted, I agree with him on a lot of things, but I still just can't see how they were drawing that conclusion. This is former Senator Jeff, Jeff Flake? Yes. Yeah, and that's a great example, uh, Ryan, because, you know, Jeff Flake, uh, at one point, former senator from Arizona, uh, he was voted into office, and uh, yet, uh, despite winning the majority in that particular state, uh, sufficient to be elected, uh, lots of folks would say, hey, that's hateful speech. You know, that, that, that's a good example of the subjectivity of hate speech and why it's hard to, to draw a, a bright line that, that really works. Uh, so you've asked the, the next question, right, the most important what, number one, what is hate speech? The second question is, what do we do about it uh, if the First Amendment doesn't allow the state to punish it? Well, you, you have a number of options. Uh, you are not powerless, right? The same First Amendment that protects people's right to say things that you disagree with or you find hateful, it protects your right to call them out, right? It protects your right to say, hey, that's racist, or hey, you know, that's bigoted, or hey, that's, that's old-fashioned and hurtful. I don't like the way that, that makes me feel. I don't like what you're saying. You have the right to uh, engage in dialogue if you want. Sometimes uh, the people who are spewing hate really would love nothing more than to have an audience, right? They would love nothing more than to, than to be protested because it uh, catapults them uh, oh, yeah. to greater visibility. I'm thinking particularly of the white uh, supremacists who are on campus the last couple of years. And uh, under this dean of students whose name was Sparky Reardon, one of the great names, uh, he, uh, he said, we're not going to play Dixie at, at, the, uh, at the football games anymore. It's, you know, it's, it's got a nasty history. We don't want to do it. We want to move forward. And he got a letter from the KKK, the local clan, wrote, a, wrote Sparky and said, we're going to come protest because we want you to keep playing that song. But what he thought was, hey, there's strength in numbers. The clan has the right to speak and we have a right to speak back. So in the end, what Sparky told me happened was he got a group of about 13 or 15 ragtag clan protesters. And then you had the whole student body, you know, thousands of students and faculty coming out to make their message heard. And I, I always think that that's a, a pretty good way to answer uh, hate speech. You know, you, you have more people who probably agree with you than, than don't. Uh, and if you speak out, then you'll find each other. And that's an important thing. So I think having a position at FIRE is such like a unique job. What influenced your decision to work at FIRE? Like, what were there any instances like in your own life, like at, like in high school where you thought like, 
one that you think back to now, like at the position that you are, like that seems like your school was limiting your own free expression? I, I, I was never uh, particularly shut up uh, in high school. Uh, in college, I was doing uh, organizing for the, the campus Green Party. And they, uh, we, we, had, we ran into a few more obstacles, but nothing that I, I would ever consider, you know, somebody really trying to silence me on account of my views. So the thing I like about fire is that uh, it's always different, right? You think you've seen it all, and then you show up to work, and something else has happened. Uh, some student or faculty members found themselves in a tough spot, and it's a situation that, you, you know, you've seen people been, be censored before, but never quite like this. Uh, and it's very satisfying to be able to help people. Uh, who, you know, maybe they're a, a first-generation college student. Maybe they uh, are nervous about speaking up, or maybe they think, uh, you know what, maybe it's, it's not worth the trouble fighting back. What, what can I do? Uh, I'm just one student. And if you can help somebody like that, boy, that, that makes my day. Have you ever gotten a case where, like, some sort of, like, dress code at a school was, like, yeah. severe enough that it was limiting free expression? Could you talk about that? And, like, do you think that some dress codes now are like severe enough to be considered as limiting free expression. Sure. Uh, we, we do see it, you know, uh, uh, there have been schools that have said, uh, I remember this is now maybe seven or eight years ago. Now there's a school, uh, that, that tried to pass a pretty strict dress code. Uh, they, they had some rule against sagging pants and I just thought uh, this kind of, uh, enforced cultural conformity is really a bad idea. I recall correctly, it was a public university, and uh, yeah, it might have been a community college. Uh, and I, I understood, I think, the impetus. I think that the, the idea was that we want students dressing like professionals. Uh, but that kind of uh, mandate really uh, clamps down on students' ability to uh, be who they are and to express themselves as they are. The, the point is you're not going to a job. You're going to school. Uh, and you're a student, and also it imposes a, a financial cost because, you know, dressing like you're at a job can cost money. Uh, you know, that's an, it's an important kind of class-based impact as well. Uh, so we spoke out against it. I said, look, surely the president of the university has better things to do with their time than go around and measure uh, whether or not somebody's pants are on their waist in the way that he, he or she deems proper. Uh, we also see dress code issues where uh, universities sometimes will say, uh, hey, you know, you're not a recognized student group. We don't want you wearing that shirt. Uh, you, you've used the university's name uh, on an item of clothing, and we think that violates trademark. Uh, it can be very limiting. On that topic, I've seen schools that will have regulations on their school dances, yeah. where if your biological sex registered with the school um, is male or female, you have to wear a dress or suit accordingly. Um, and I Personally, I feel like that's very limiting when it comes to gender expression. Sure. Um, and do you think that that um, falls under this topic? The way the law stands uh, is still uh, emerging, right? We're, we're seeing cases being brought by uh, students who uh, are outside of the traditional binary gender sense, right? And seeing how schools treat them throughout the country uh, has been eye-opening, in some cases very depressing. Uh, and we will continue to see courts work through that. Uh, my own personal take is that I, I think uh, at some point uh, you are going to see uh, forced sex stereotyping uh, uh, recognized as, uh, in some instances, 
uh, discrimination on the basis of, uh, of, of a protected class status. Right now, there are court interpretations of Title IX, which is the federal law that bans uh, discrimination on the basis of sex, that uh, also say that if you don't conform to the expectation of your sex, that is, if you uh, don't wear, for in this instance that you're describing, the, the prom dress because you were born uh, biologically female, uh, that you are, have been subjected to discrimination, right? So it's just as much discrimination if somebody says something nasty to you because of your gender as it is if somebody says something nasty to you because you're not conforming to their expectation of your gender. So that, that I think, is, is, uh, is fairly well established in some courts right now, and we'll continue to see how that plays out. Uh, so stay tuned. I brought a, I would say, pretty centrist speaker who had some critiques on higher ed to my school. He was said to have been protested by some teachers, and in an effort to not cause controversy, head of the upper school actually disinvited him. They kind of covered it up for optics by saying, you know, Olivia, you didn't go through the right channels. You didn't get it fully, quote unquote, approved yet. This was the same process any other speaker had. It was too soon for our community. It's clearly not fully in line with the First Amendment. And let's say it happened in a public school. Sure. How can you define that? Yeah, well, I, you know, Olivia, I, I sympathize. First of all, it sounds incredibly narrow-minded, perhaps, and, and it's generally beyond just the specifics of, of you being at a, a private high school. Uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall said, and again, I'm paraphrasing, uh, freedom to speak and, and freedom to hear are, are two sides of the same coin. Uh, the idea that, you know, one can act as an arbiter uh, with any uh, real authority about what, uh, what ideas are fit for other people to hear uh, it can be really, if you think about it, upon examination, rather arrogant. Uh, I think there are a variety of ways to react to speakers uh, with whom one might disagree, uh, regardless of you know what they're saying or what their message is. As I mentioned before, you can ignore them, you can counter-protest them, you can ask your own questions. Uh, you can even stand up, turn your back, and walk out on uh, mass if you don't uh, disrupt the event and the event is allowed to continue after that. But shutting down a speech before it happens I think short circuits uh, the educational possibilities presented by hearing somebody who you might not agree with. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm in total agreement. I think that was our whole point. Of that's why we had the assembly. Right. Find the person you disagree with, uh, who's the smartest person <laughs> you disagree with, and listen to what they say. You know, and interrogate your own ideas. So if you if you shut down the speech uh, before somebody gives it, uh, then you've lost the chance to. Uh, sharpen it, uh, sharpen your own sense of, of what you believe in, right? It's not that your mind necessarily is going to be changed. Maybe it won't be, but maybe your own ideas will be confirmed. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so confirming, maybe you'll have a better argument uh, for next time. You know, I, I'll just say one last thing, Olivia, on this point, and again, my sympathies. Uh, if we only allowed speakers who uh, were either bland or non-controversial uh, or we already agreed with, but my point is that there's a very narrow subset of folks who are going to be generally acceptable to everybody, and they're probably going to be pretty boring. Yeah. How does that work with your work with the First Amendment? If a student brought a case like this to you that didn't go to a private school, how would you characterize it and respond? Because like, I totally am in alignment that educationally, this was a missed opportunity. It's a good question. Uh, if it was at a public university and, and a student group was inviting a speaker and the administration said, you know what, that speaker is too controversial, we're going to shut them down. Uh, we would be involved. Uh, in fact, we litigated against Western Michigan University uh, on a case like that. Uh, the now he's now famous as a director, but he, he's formerly famous as a rapper and activist. Uh, Boots Riley uh, was, was being brought by the Kalamazoo Peace Center 
to Western Michigan University, and the chief of police at Kalamazoo Googled Boots Riley and found out that he had been involved in the Occupy movement and thought, mm -mm, he can't come here. So he said, we'll only let him come here if we're allowed to put uh, undercover cops in the room with him and you're going to pay for them. And the student group said, no, we're not going to do that, first of all. And second of all, we can't afford to do that. So, you know, I guess we'll have to move the event off campus. And we brought a lawsuit against Western Michigan uh, on that basis. And Western Michigan settled pretty quickly. And you can find out more about that case at thefire.org. I should also, just one last note, calls for censorship uh, are protected. It's when they're acted upon, when the administration says, you know what, you're right, this is too controversial, we can't let it go forward. That's when we have a problem. You can stand outside and protest all day. That, I mean, that, that's your first amendment right, too. Uh, but it's when the government steps in to say, this is too much on the basis of this person's viewpoint, we're going to shut him down. That's when we have an issue. This one's from Maggie, who had to sign off. Uh, she wants to know, is there a difference in the way that free speech rights are lacking in faculty versus students? And yeah. I also want to add a little bit of my own spin to this question, especially because I go to a public school and the teachers are like, they're told they're not allowed to tell their political beliefs to students. Like right. when we had the climate march, I don't, teachers who just stood and watched us, they didn't hold signs, they didn't speak, they just like had to observe, couldn't give their opinion. So I just wanted to know their difference in the way it's protected for students and faculty. This is we were discussing yesterday at the forum, students in high school have a lesser degree of First Amendment rights than students at uh, public universities. So when you graduate from your public high school and go to a public university, the world opens up for you in terms of the First Amendment protections that you have. Uh, there's a little bit of a corollary there with faculty. Uh, faculty at, at public high schools, uh, it's not that they aren't allowed to speak their minds, uh, but they are public employees. And in teaching, uh, there is uh, some question about what they can say in the classroom. And I think you, what the schools would argue is that they have uh, a greater right to uh, control classroom expression uh, in the public high school they may they may in college. In college, we know that professors have academic freedom rights uh, to explore controversial material, to have an opinion, and the basic idea is that faculty should try to be uh, even-handed and not introduce controversial material just for the sake of being controversial, but to give space for students to learn. You, you don't want to just indoctrinate students, you want to teach them uh, and challenge them. And uh, that's in the classroom. Outside of the classroom, faculty uh, have the same rights as uh, private citizens speaking about matters of public concern uh, that the rest of us do. Uh, they just have to be clear when they're speaking as private citizens and not speaking on behalf of their institution, which is the general presumption. So I think sometimes having a faculty member with an opinion is a good thing. One of the best yeah. faculty members I ever had was a George W. Bush appointee, uh, I think in the Treasury Department. And so he and I uh, again, this is me speaking personally, not as far, but he and I disagreed on just about everything. But he had, he assigned me a, a policy uh, project where I had to research all the arguments for privatizing Social Security, and I, I don't agree with that. But I'll tell you what, after spending two weeks of researching it, uh, it's not that my mind was changed, but also I knew a heck of a lot more yeah. about Social Security, and I was able to make my arguments much better. So having something to push against sometimes can be really valuable. Yeah, just to interject for two seconds, coming from a school where we're often told what to think instead of how to think, I think there is some benefit to more nonpartisan teachers. I think having an opinion is important, but to what extent can it hinder the learning experience? I would also add, because I've experienced the opposite end of that stick, and it has been quite the, the time. 
Right, right. Yeah, well, I, I hear you, Olivia. That's a great point. I think good pedagogy gives room for discussion. I, I taught a law school class on the First Amendment a couple of years ago, and now that everybody's got laptops in law school classes, and some of those laptops have political stickers on it, I knew I had a, a Trump supporter, and I had people who were not Trump supporters. It's just after the election. And what was really fun for me is to be able to call on the Trump supporter, and he would uh, give one viewpoint, and call the people who disagree with him, and he, they would give another viewpoint. And I could kind of curate this battle of ideas in the classroom, you know, in these, these friendly confines. And it's actually really fun that way. So, yeah, I think good teachers, you know, they, they can have a viewpoint. But as, just as you said it, you said it perfectly, how to think, not what to think. That's very well stated. That's awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. Thank you. Yeah. That's all for today with Next Gen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for Next Gen Politics.